up, Sassnacks. It's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassnack Files. This week, I'm discussing 503 Free Will. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassnack Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to follow the Sassnack Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander seasons six and seven, as well as anything Diana Gabaldon has cooked up. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of season five, episode three, Free Will. Anybody else super creeped out after this episode? (laughs) It is one of the weirdest episodes of Outlander that I think we have gotten so far. In season six, Katrina Balfe said in a recent interview that they are going to continue to take chances with their storytelling styles, which I'm guessing means that we're going to get some more storytelling devices like we've gotten throughout season five. This is the first of the kind of wonky chancy episodes that we get. Another couple of them are 508, Famous Last Words, and 512, Never My Love, are the two that pop up. But I think we do take some chances more in season five, and I think they felt that those paid off. So look for that to continue in season six. But this is the first one that was kind of out there a little bit, and it turned a lot of people off at first. I was kind of expecting this as a book reader, so I wasn't completely shocked, but also it's probably one of my least favorite episodes of season five just because of the creep factor. Like, I think it's a good story, and I think that it does show a little bit of how our characters are developing over the years, but just as a general love-hate relationship type thing, I'm, I'm not in love with it. Let's put it that way. I don't hate it but I'm not in love with it. So this episode picks up and it seems like it's going to be perfectly normal. We're continuing with the discovery of penicillin and I really like that Marsali has fully accepted her role as Claire's apprentice and they're talking about the appearance of penicillin and what it looks like, how they're going to get it, what it's supposed to do, etc. Claire is asking Marsley, well, how do you think that I know what penicillin looks like and that it will serve as medicine and all of that? And Marsley says, "Um, from a book (laughs) or maybe in Boston, they seem to have all sorts of newfangled ideas up there. (laughs) And I just laughed at that because that's relevant on both a historical level and a storytelling level. Because I'm sure that all the people on the ridge are constantly getting stories of everything that Claire and Brianna and Roger has supposedly done in Boston, quote unquote, which is just code for the future. And then on top of that, they've probably got word coming to them slowly but surely of all of the revolutionary things that are happening in Boston. Not quite so much in Book five, I think it will lead more into book six with the Boston Tea Party and everything. But at this point in time, it's 
approximately the time of the Boston Massacre and things like that. So things are starting to heat up in the North and I'm sure that they're slowly getting word of all of these newfangled ideas of freedom. It's getting interesting and I love that that double entendre was certainly there in this line with Marsily. I was really fond of the fact that they made it not such an instantaneous thing with the discovery of penicillin. We can see that Claire and Marsley have been going at this for a long time whenever we see the progression of the breakdown of the moldy bread. This is happening over several weeks. And we can also get a good idea of just how long Jamie has been gone at this point as well. So that by the time he reappears after the main credits, it's like, oh... Jamie's home. It's so good. It's okay. Yes, we will get there, right? But I did want to mention one thing about the penicillin scenes that I did really love before we get into me fawning over Jamie. (laughs) There is this moment when Claire's looking into her microscope when it's this sweeping view of her surgery and all of the pieces of bread and moldy fruit and all of this under their glass covers and there's this gorgeous it's almost like a sun catcher slash wind chime like it's all got all these glass orbs hanging from it and with the sun coming through her lead rimmed window panes it is really just so gorgeous and in that moment I was like oh that's so pretty I have to mention it because I never noticed it before But yeah, I was a big fan of how how that looked cinematically. Okay, now we can talk about Jamie. Jamie, 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 Jamie. I love that he shows up at the ridge at sunrise and you can just tell that he was close to home and he could have camped for the night, but he really just wanted to get home and be with Claire and Bree and Jimmy. And so he rode all night and he rides up onto the ridge and he just stands there looking out over his domain. And it's, it's like the quote from the Lion King, everything the light touches is our kingdom. (laughs) It was really good to see that, to see how he puffs up with pride. And I don't know, there was just something about his peace. Last episode was such a tumultuous story for him. And he's carrying that into the conversation that he has with Claire But it's like, he's home, he's with Claire, everything will be okay now. They'll work it out. Whenever he walks into the kitchen, because the house isn't finished yet, so he and Claire are still sleeping in the kitchen, he walks in and Claire's in bed and he says, Deo gracias, which (laughs) I can't say it enough. His love for Claire just... It breaks my heart in the best way. I don't even know if heartbreaking is the word, but it just makes my heart so full that it's going to burst. Maybe that's the right way to put it. It's so great. And I feel like there's not a lot of that epic love on TV and certainly not in the world these days. So to see it just makes me happy. That's why I keep coming back to Outlander. And I think that's true for a lot of people. But... Another thing that I really love and probably one of my favorite things about this series, and Diana has talked about it multiple times when she's been asked about the book, is that she didn't write Outlander to write this one and done romance. And as I'm writing in the romance genre right now, I did not realize how many rules there are to fit into a genre, guys. But typically to have a book that fits into romance versus what's called chick lit is that 
you have to start out with a couple, tell their love story, and then have it end with a happy ending, typically with them either getting engaged or married at the end of the book. Those are the rules, the general outline of the romance genre, because apparently when people read romance, they expect a happy ending, which I mean, okay, noted. But I love that Diana kind of bends the rules a little bit because her books are so genre-defying. Nobody can really put a finger on them. And yes, while they are romance, they're also action, adventure, historical fiction, a little bit of science fiction. So whenever she set out to tell the story of Jamie and Claire, it wasn't necessarily a romance. The first book, in a sense, yes, is a romance. It tells the story of Jamie and Claire and how they became a couple and their romance. But the story, the overall arc of the series, is telling how a couple builds their marriage, stays together for 50, 60 years. And I really do love that about Outlander. And I think that we can see that in these little scenes that we get between Jamie and Claire, like the very first one where it's just a domestic moment. Jamie comes home late and he needs to talk. So Claire gets out of bed and they have a cup of tea and a dram of whiskey and they discuss everything that happened with Jamie and Hillsborough. And Claire is giving him her advice, and really just lending each other an ear for all the things that have happened while they've been apart. Their communication is one thing that I love so much about them as a couple. So to see that, and we don't get a lot of that in the series, we don't get a lot of the quiet little moments. It's mostly action-packed. So it really just kind of gives us a moment to take a breath, take a beat, and enjoy these characters because the rest of the episode, we don't get that so much. But I think it's important to note that we're really getting what's in Jamie's head. I talked about it a little bit in the last episode where after Jamie releases those men from the jail, he's getting the idea that this isn't going to be as simple as he thought it was going to be. And he's voicing that to Claire in this moment. He released the men from the jail as an act of mercy and to prevent further bloodshed. But... It takes two to tango. These men have no intention of heeding Jamie's word and keeping out of the fight. They're just going to step right back into it. And that's what he's expressing to Claire, that he really feels like he's doing his best to prevent this battle from happening, but he doesn't think it's doing any good. Then Claire says, you know, everybody has made their choice in this matter, and you're going to have to make a choice, and I'm going to have to make a choice, and we're all going to have to live with it. You can't hold yourself responsible for the actions of other men. I really did love that she finally is just like, look, you have too much on your plate. You are putting way too much on your shoulders. You can only be responsible for yourself and you can do the best that you can do to give them a chance. But in the end, they have to be willing to take what you're offering. So I thought that that was a really great way to start this episode because in the end, it all comes full circle. And when we get to Aaron Beardsley in the cabin, he also gives Beardsley a choice. Do you want my wife to tend to your leg and your injuries? Or do you want me to shoot you? Beardsley decides to take what Jamie's offering. So it's kind of the juxtaposition of the two storylines, I think, that I find most interesting about this episode in general. So after they put the militia from Fraser's Ridge together, they continue on to Brownsville. And along the way, we learn that 
Josiah Beardsley, the hunter that Lizzie is so fond of, actually has a deaf twin brother named Keziah, and they are bond servants for Aaron and Fanny Beardsley. So this was kind of out of left field for a lot of our main cast, Roger, Claire, and Jamie included, but I felt like more than anything, the one thing that I noticed is how it showcases the kindness of Jamie, Claire, and Roger, especially Jamie, because Josiah, now that they've been caught stealing food, he's so worried that they are going to turn them over to the authorities and it's going to cost him a hand or an ear or possible imprisonment. I mean, he's already been warned once. He has the T on his hand that brands him as a thief. It's a dangerous situation. I think that Josiah is really afraid for Kezi. Jamie says, no, you're welcome to the food. Jamie knows what it's like to be starving and on the run, and he's not going to deny two young boys the chance to fill their bellies when they have plenty to eat. And I think that that shows how generous he is rather than the selfish nature of most people in that day and age. And I mean, food was hard to come by. Money was scarce. So it's natural to kind of hoard your belongings and not have that generosity. But I think that that really says a lot about our characters as a whole, that they were willing to share what they have instead of keep it for themselves. One of you asked in the comments for this episode if the twins are played by the same person or whether they are actually twins themselves. So a little bit of detail on that. Joe and Kezi are played by Paul Gorman. So one actor, they do a combination of techniques. They do split screen, which is the typical laying one image on top of another whenever they're sitting next to each other or staring at each other and having a conversation with each other, that sort of thing. And they also use body doubles with a CGI face replacement for other scenes. So yes, one person. And twins are actually one of the more simple special effects that you can do in the film industry. So I do find it really interesting that that's the case. And I mean, they've been doing it for decades at this point, having twins on screen together and just doing a split screen. As for Kezi, he's deaf. He's been deaf since he was five years old and he was actually deafened at the hand of Mr. Beardsley, which is kind of our first clue that he's not such a good guy. When Joe says be careful to Jamie, it's like, oh shit. Okay. Well, thanks for the warning. Because Jamie's not a small guy and he's not inexperienced. He's the colonel of a militia. So for him to get a warning to be careful, that means that it's a pretty dangerous man he's going to meet. He just sounds like a trash guy, doesn't he? Like buying two five-year-old boys for an indentured term of 30 years and then beating them so badly that he actually deafens one of them oh my God, like already we're not getting good vibes off of this guy. And then Claire and Jamie go to the cabin to find them for themselves. What they find (laughs) is a bit of a nightmare. Um, It's like out of a horror movie. It's just like the cabin in the woods or something. I don't know. A fun fact about this set. So this actually isn't a new set, the Beardsley cabin. It's actually Brianna and Roger's cabin, which was previously Jamie and Claire's cabin, that has been modified and set dressed to look completely different. They enclosed the front porch. They stained it a different color and they put all kinds of overgrown weeds and 
wagon parts and stuff laying around. And they approached the house from a different angle so that it looks different on camera. And then on the inside, they've taken the ceiling out and made the roof higher on one side so that you can see through the window up at the top. And then they've got stairs going up to the loft on the other end. So yeah, that's kind of the movie magic of all of this. It really fascinates me how they can take the same set and make it completely different on multiple occasions. So Jamie and Claire show up at the cabin and Claire is getting like, I'm not sure about this, Jamie, (laughs) vibes. And he's like, it'll be okay. And so she goes and checks the barn. He checks the house and Fanny Beersley does her creepy popping up out of nowhere thing right in the window and Jamie gets a start. This chick is so creepy. Like, so creepy. Bronwyn James does a fantastic job of playing this girl. We're not really sure if she's off her rocker, if she's just antisocial, if she's, you know, hiding something. We're, we're not really sure. And I don't think we'll ever be sure. Um, I just think with Fanny, the victim or villain line is a very fine line. And I think it all boils down to perception. I tend to view her as a victim, not a villain. I know what she did to Beardsley was absolutely terrible. And there's really no excuse for that kind of inhumane treatment, except for the fact that she probably took, we know she at least took three years of probably sexual abuse, verbal and physical abuse at the hands of this man. He's killed four wives before her because of his abuse and the bond servants, Joe and Kezi, you know, they've obviously been physically damaged at his hands as well. So he's not a good guy at all, like by any stretch of the imagination. And a person can only take that kind of treatment for so long before they break. I think that Fanny was really young when she was married off to Beardsley. We're probably talking like 15 or so, maybe even 14. So her innocence was taken from her rapidly and very tragically, I feel like, to be taken to the backwoods of North Carolina and just basically imprisoned there because where else is she going to go? I think that probably did a lot to her mentally. And I think when Beardsley had his stroke, that was probably just, she probably just snapped, honestly. I think that when you're faced with the person that has done so many terrible things to you and they're lying in front of you helpless, it is really tempting to be inhumane to them, be as inhumane to them as they were to you. Whenever she thinks that Jamie and Claire might be able to save him, she panics and she's like, no, he has to die. He has to die. There is no saving him. I can't be married to him anymore. So that's why she tries to strangle him. And I love that Jamie is like, you could have killed him at your leisure. Why in God's name would you wait until you have witnesses? It was probably gratifying for her to inflict pain on him, given how much pain he inflicted on her. And I think... Like I said, she's probably very emotionally damaged after what she's gone through over the past three years. Not a lot of feel-good moments for her, I guess. And so to have that kind of gratification of finally being able to pay it back in a way was probably a little bit too much for her to handle given her circumstances. But she clearly did find a little bit of solace in this mystery man that is the father of her child. 
I think that Fanny is of two minds about it. Like, she's happy that her daughter is not the daughter of Aaron Beardsley because who would want to have a child with that man? Ugh. Nope. Nope. But it's also like she says, having a baby doesn't make me a mother any more than sleeping in a stable makes someone a horse. Fanny, I don't think really wants to be a mother. She doesn't want that responsibility. I think that she was very fond of the man that she slept with, and he's a good man, and I don't think that she regrets that action, but she's not ready to be a mother, and she realizes that, and so when Jamie and Claire show up, she sees an opportunity, I think. She recognizes that they're kind people that have their shit together and that they can take care of this little girl in a way that Fanny can't and isn't ready to. So she decides to leave her baby with them. And that is a huge decision, like a huge decision. I can't imagine having to make that decision. But actions like this are why I think that Fanny ultimately is a good person. She wants Kezie and Joe to be happy and to be free. So she gives the papers to Jamie and Claire. She wants a good life for her daughter, even if she can't give it to her. So she leaves her with Jamie and Claire. I think all she really wants is happiness. And I don't think that that is too much for anyone to ask. Claire, she doesn't hold Fanny's actions against her. I mean, Lord knows Claire has done plenty of questionable things in her life. And I love that. Yeah, while Fanny freaks Claire out quite a bit because she's so unstable, I feel like, she also looks at Beardsley and said, what you must have done to deserve something like this. I'm glad that while they don't condone Fanny's behavior, they also kind of understand her actions a little bit. And I think that's kind of where I'm at. Like, no, it's never okay to torture a helpless human being. But I do kind of get how a person could get to that point where they are just done on a deeper level than anybody can imagine and just want to inflict pain on the person that's inflicted so much pain on them. I'm not sure if we'll see Fanny again in the show. I don't think we will. I think they closed the book on her in a decent way. Like, I think we have enough closure on her storyline that that's probably the last we'll see of her. And clearly, we won't have to see Mr. Beardsley again. When they find him in the attic, Jamie says a line to Claire. He says, God's justice, you think? And while I'm not a super religious person, I would like to hope that there is karma in the world. I fully believe in what comes around goes around. If anybody deserves to have a stroke and die slowly in their own filth, I would say that it's somebody like Aaron Beardsley. <laughs> like, how sick of a person do you have to be? It really baffles me. And so... Again, when Jamie puts this man out of his misery, it really says more about Jamie than it does anything else because Jamie's willing to put him out of his misery, shoot him. And because he's clearly not going to get any better and Jamie has Claire make that diagnosis before he takes any steps about it, which I think is the right course of action. But he says, I would do it for a dog, Claire. How could I not do the same for him? I admire that about Jamie. And it's such an interesting moment for our characters because Jamie feels this on a deeper level than I think anyone really understands when they're watching the first 
three quarters to four fifths of this episode. Because I think a lot of people forget that Jamie's father suffered a stroke and that's how he died. When Jamie sees Aaron Beardsley suffering like this, I think he kind of panics a little bit. There's this voice in the back of his head that's saying, oh my God, what if this is how your father died and you weren't around? You weren't there. You weren't there to help your sister. Your sister had to deal with this all by herself. So there's a lot of self-blame going on. And I think that Jamie's of the mind that if he can ease one person's suffering, that's better than nothing. What I find interesting about that scene in general is that Jamie's a very religious man. And when he says, I have no wish to send a soul to hell, will you pray for forgiveness? Beardsley just, he blinks twice for no. I thought that was so interesting because he's not asking for forgiveness. He's asking for mercy, which blows my mind. How can you be lying on your deathbed and not want forgiveness for all the terrible things that you've done, all the terrible acts that you have committed and the lives that you have ruined. How can you not want forgiveness for that? So yeah, I think that just showcases even further to the point that Aaron Beardsley is an absolutely terrible, terrible person. Just, just awful. Jamie shoots him because that's what Beardsley wants, but I think it's at a personal cost to Jamie. Yes, it was a mercy killing and the man asked him to do it. But there's still something that seems inherently wrong about that action, I guess. I don't know if this is me projecting my own beliefs onto the character of Jamie or not, but that's kind of how I feel. I feel like he he does struggle with it a little bit. I know he struggles with it in the books a lot more than he struggles with it in the show because in the books we see him weeping as he digs Beardsley's grave. And I think that it does drudge up a lot of bad old memories because after he shoots Beardsley, he comes out of the cabin and him and Claire have a very frank conversation about Jamie's father. And Claire does tell him, she says, you know, it's not always like that. Sometimes they do die outright, but you can tell it's been plaguing on Jamie. And Claire swears, she says, Jenny would have told you if your father had suffered. And I don't think she would have. I think she still believes to some extent that she can protect Jamie from the worst things in life. And I don't think that she would have wanted to share that with Jamie. I don't think she would lie about it if he asked her outright, but I don't think that's information that she's going to share with him just for the hell of it. But I did really like the conversation that Jamie and Claire have where he says, my quote of the episode Swear to me, Claire, if it should one day fall to my lot as it did to my father, swear to me that you will give me the same mercy I gave that wretch. So put me out of my misery, is what he's saying. Don't let me linger in pain and agony, soiled in my own filth. I find it so hard watching this scene. I know that it's different from what happens later in this season. I'm not going to get too much into it because I do want to talk about it in that episode. But there is a moment in this season where this conversation was triggered a little bit for me. She swears that she'll do what must be done. I 
don't know that she means the same thing that Jamie means by I'll do what must be done. It's difficult to interpret their meanings. I mean, I would like to think that if Jamie suffers a stroke and is beyond saving, that she wouldn't let him linger like that. I would hope that she really would put him out of his misery. And I think that a lot of people feel like that. Nobody wants to live the rest of their days as a vegetable, remembering better days whenever they were fully capable of taking care of themselves in every sense of the word. But yeah, I do have my doubts based on what happens later in this season. I guess I'll put it that way. So the topic of Brie and Roger leaving is also brought up in this episode to Jamie. Now, we got Brie and Roger and Claire and Roger talking about it a little bit in the last episode, but this is really just now the point where Jamie has been around to have these discussions. He's been gone for months at this point. I'm not sure that this was the best time to bring this up to Jamie, but you know, Claire says what's on her mind and damn the consequences. But I feel like... When Claire says, I want Bree and Roger and Jemmy to go back to their own time, I felt so bad for Jamie. So bad. Because even if he wanted to go back with them, he couldn't. It's the worst. It's so bad. I think it's probably the worst possible thing Claire could have said to him to say, and Roger agrees. Because then Jamie just rolls his eyes and says, oh, yeah, of course he does. Because Jamie doesn't have the highest opinion of Roger anyway. And now she's basically telling him that Roger is going to be responsible for taking his daughter and his grandson away from him. That may not be how Claire means it, but that's certainly how Jamie's taking it. I do really feel bad for Jamie because he doesn't know any different. All he knows is life in the 18th century and he feels that it's relatively safe for them and that he's certainly going to do everything within his power to keep it that way. He would never intentionally let anything happen to any of them. That's just his role in life. He protects his family. That's who he is. But he can't always be there to stand between them and everything bad in the world. It's like he tells Claire, well, your penicillin will help keep them safer. He's supportive of that venture because he knows that it's going to help. Like he's felt the benefits of penicillin. He knows how much of a miracle it is, especially in a world where all they have are herbs to this point to fight things like infection. But I think he just doesn't understand how dangerous the 18th century is because he's never known any different. And here Claire is witnessing all these horrors that she's witnessed over the past couple of days with bond servants and abusive husbands and people not having to answer for their crimes. And she says, what sort of world is this to bring a child into? Jamie says, the only world. And she looks at him and she says, no, it isn't. I know a different world. And it's a hell of a lot safer than this, is what she's thinking. It's hard because in a lot of respects, the 20th century is a safer place. People are held accountable for their actions a lot more, certainly, um, in terms of the law. And it's safer medically. But 
it's like Jamie says, okay, they can go back, but they're going to be without their family. And I think that's the difference really between what Jamie holds and what Claire holds as important. So Jamie would lay down his life for his family and that's his number one priority. And while Claire loves her family, she views safety as a completely different as a completely different topic. She has a completely different way of seeing the world because she comes from a place where there's all of this technology and ways of keeping people safe and healthy. And for Jamie, a resident of the 18th century, safety is in numbers. Safety is the clan. Safety is Laird versus tenant and family and friends providing for each other, helping each other. It's just a completely different world that each of them comes from. So I think it's really hard for them to understand each other's point of view in a situation like this. But they had the conversation and then they put it out of their minds because they got bigger fish to fry in this episode. But I like that they, that she at least mentioned it to him. And I think this goes back to when Jamie tells Claire about Stephen Bonnet being alive. This was the first opportunity that they really had to discuss it because like he said, there was the wedding and then I had to go with not. And then when I got back, we had to muster a militia and I meant to tell you, but it just kind of, there was never a good time. So he's telling her now. And the one thing that I don't agree with at all is Jamie and Claire's decision to not tell Bree that Bonnet is alive. That's a hell of a secret to keep. And I don't think that it's the safe decision for anybody. Nobody involved. Everybody needs to know that that bastard is alive and he's a potential problem. And to make matters worse, Brie already knows. She's just waiting for somebody to tell her. And the longer that nobody tells her, the less likely it is that she's going to trust any of them because they, she knows they're lying to her. It's just such a mess. And it's also really frustrating that Jamie wouldn't tell Roger. I mean, that's his wife. It's his wife. Why would you not tell him? I mean, I get it. Jamie doesn't exactly have the highest opinion of Roger, but he still has a right to know, you know? So that was a very frustrating scene for me. That was the one moment where I was like, Jamie, what are we doing, bro? Like, what are we doing? But... I love Jamie, so I can't judge him too hardcore, but I really wasn't okay with that decision on his part. The last topic of discussion that I want to bring up is the passenger pigeons at the very end of this episode. I think they symbolize a couple of different things. There's been much discussion about it in the different episode threads that I've been looking at. So I want to put in my two cents on it. A little bit of history on passenger pigeons. They were in the books in a section of the book that got cut for time reasons. I think that it was probably one of the portions of the book that it didn't really have any relevance to the rest of the plot, so I was expecting it to get cut. But there were a couple of moments in this season that I really did appreciate it. It was a nod to the readers, like, oh, we didn't have a chance to write this into the script, but we see you, we hear you, here's this little nugget 
this little Easter egg for you guys to have to hold on to. And the passenger pigeons were one of those things. So the passenger pigeon was hunted to extinction as European settlers came to settle America. They were a source of food, but they were also viewed as an agricultural threat. So they were hunted to extinction. These birds used to fly in these massive flocks like we see at the end of this episode. It would be just thunderous sounds of wings for hours on end. It would literally black out the sky. That's how big these flocks were. So the idea that something like this was hunted to extinction, like how many birds had to have been killed? Like millions and millions and millions of birds. It kind of makes me sick to think that something that was once so plentiful is just gone forever. I know that that's the case with a lot of things. And I think that that is one reason that we see the passenger pigeons. It's a symbol of impending change. And we get more things like this as the season progresses. We get some whales off the coast of North Carolina that kind of just show, okay, this is how it used to be, but here soon, it's not going to be like that anymore. I think that there is also another symbol hidden in the appearance of this flock of passenger pigeons. I did a little bit of research. Birds in general have been used to symbolize everything from the representation of human life to the connection between heaven and earth, good and bad omens, but in general, represent freedom. Now, the name Francis, or Fanny, also means freedom, as she tells Claire. So whenever we get to the end of this episode where Aaron Beardsley has been freed from his mortal coil, and in doing that, in Jamie shooting him, Fanny Beardsley has also been freed from her marriage vows, we get this upward whoosh of freedom as that shot goes off and these passenger pigeons come flying out of the trees. So I really think that that's what that flock of passenger pigeons represents in the truest sense of the word. And so I wanted to make sure to kind of put my two cents in for you guys that have been wondering about the presence of the passenger pigeons. Yes, it does seem like an astronomical and unrealistic amount of birds, but I'm here to tell you that it's not actually. We just, in the present day, haven't ever seen anything like that or close to that because the birds have been hunted to extinction. Changes in the wind, my friends. And with that, I will talk about my performance of the episode because, like I said, my quote of the episode was, swear to me, Claire, if it should one day fall to my lot as it did to my father, swear to me that you will give the same mercy that I gave that wretch. Because I think that that says a lot about Jamie, that while he knows that his family would need him, if he's not going to be doing anybody any good and it's just going to be sitting around in misery, he would rather just die. And I think a lot of people feel that way. But it was poetically written and such a powerful character moment for him that I really did love that quote for him. Performance of the episode, I felt, was Bronwyn James, who plays Fanny Beardsley. I felt that she did a phenomenal job of balancing the unhinged with the sympathetic character with the downright creepy. She managed it all flawlessly. So performance of the episode goes to her. Alrighty, guys. Well, that wraps up all I have to say on 503 Free Will. But as always, I want to take a moment to discuss what you guys had to say about this episode. 
Becky Hartwell says, oh man, this episode gave me chills. I'm not normally a fan of spooky anything, but it's Outlander, so I couldn't turn it off. I think Jamie's decision to shoot Mr. Beardsley was justifiable. He's a merciful man and most likely thought he had already paid his dues for everything that he did to Fanny with the way she cared for him after his stroke. Fanny still gives me the creeps. Yeah, I think that Jamie probably did feel that way to a certain extent. Like I said, I think his primary struggle with that mercy killing was the idea of killing anyone in general. He's a religious man and the fact that if the Christian religion is to be believed, he was sending Beardsley to hell because he didn't pray for forgiveness. So that's hard, I think, for him. I think that was the hardest part of it all. Lara Hillman Turner says, The opening shot of the big house and later when Jamie rides down the rolling hills towards the house is so beautiful. The whole episode has a dark, uneasy feel to it. It's one of my least favorite episodes. It frustrates me that everyone knows that Bonnet is on the loose, but let's leave Brianna at home with Mr. and Mrs. Bug. It will be fine. (laughs) The Beardsley cabin was especially high on the creep factor the whole time I was anxious. I was relieved when Fanny left and didn't take the baby with her. Jamie was kind to assist Mr. Beardsley to end his suffering, even though it was difficult for him to do. The book spends much more time with Jamie struggling with the death and him leaving the door open so his soul could escape. I'm assuming that was what was represented when the birds flew off. I do think that in some respects, it was Mr. Beardsley being released from his physical bonds, I guess. It's interesting because not everybody knows that... Bonnet is alive. In fact, when they all leave, Jamie's the only one that knows that Bonnet is alive. I don't think that Claire and Roger would have been so keen to leave her alone if that were the case, especially Roger. But at the same time, there's not a whole lot that can be done about it. When a militia is summoned, everyone, every able-bodied man between the age of 16 and 60, barring disability, or age, you know, they have to go. It's like a draft, kind of. Yeah, I'm not so sure that they had a choice about it, although it does suck. But like I said, Jamie's really the only one that knew about it, aside from Lord John, and Lord John's not there. So I get what you're saying, though, Laura. Final comment of the episode is from Casey Filson. She said, I'm not usually one for creepy, but I felt at least moderately safe with it being Outlander. The first time I watched, I'm pretty sure I physically jumped when Fanny suddenly appeared in the window, maybe when Mr. Beardley was found too. That was extra creepy. I do think what Jamie did was justifiable. Mr. Beardsley was in a state of not going back to normal health and dragging him to another town would have been horribly uncomfortable if he survived. The fact that Fanny was pregnant was also quite a shock. In a tough episode to find many positives, I love the scenes of Claire holding the baby and how Jamie looks at her. My big fascination with this episode are those birds at the end when Mr. Beardsley died. My husband suggested that maybe they represent the souls of the otherwise being freed, but I'm not sure how I feel about that. No, I don't think that it was the souls of the other wives. I mean, honestly, I think that, if anything, if you believe in ghosts, they were probably more so hanging around to help protect Fanny than anything. And if you're a reader of the books, that's kind of how it's led to believe as well, that they're there to to help and protect Fanny, especially Marianne. We do get a little bit more detail in that section of the Fiery Cross. As for the cabin, I forgot to mention this in the main episode, but Katrina said that when her and Sam put their handkerchiefs and their sleeves to their noses to deal with the stench, 
She said that wasn't all faking it because those goats actually were in that house on set. And she said the stench of their excrement and urine with like four different goats in such a small space. She said it was downright awful and it smelled disgusting. So not all faked, guys. Not all acting for the bad smell faces. Also, when they discover Mr. Beardsley up in the attic, there are flies buzzing around. Those are all CGI'd in, which I thought was also interesting. Makes sense because I guess you can't really control if flies stay in the shot or not. But those are all CGI'd. And then the maggots, the maggots make another appearance later on in the season. Sam was definitely super creeped out by the maggots. (laughs) It's kind of cute. If you watch the video on YouTube or anything, Katrina posted a video to her story. So I'm sure it's made it to the interweb video platforms somewhere, but it is pretty hilarious because he's just like, ew, super greased out like this big, tough man. And he's so grossed out by the sight of maggots, (laughs) which I mean, Katrina did say that they smelled like rotten meat. So I can imagine if it smelled like goat piss, goat poop, and rotting meat. Like I'm sure I probably would have vomited. So I'm really glad I didn't have to be on set that day. I'm sure all of you are as well. So with that lovely tidbit of information, I'm going to bring the episode to a close for the week. Nothing new Outlander related to report. However, my book Downforce is available for pre-order on Amazon for ebook only. I'm working on the proofs for the print book, so it should be available shortly as well if you're wanting to hold out for that. Release date of February 14th for my romance novel debut. So if you would like to pre-order, I would be very grateful for any pre-orders because that always helps to expand the algorithm and bring it up sooner when people search and purchase a book on pre-order. With all of that, I'm going to get out of here for this week. I will not be able to speak to you again until after Christmas. So I want to wish all of you a very Merry Christmas indeed. With all of that, I'm signing off. You guys have a fantastic week, a happy holidays, and I'll chat at you later. Bye.